Thank you so much for welcoming us. I uh, am really grateful for Marcus. Uh, he mentioned he's serving here uh, this school year as our student ministries intern, and one of my areas of focus as the associate pastor here at the Brookside campus is to oversee 6th through 12th grade, so I've been really grateful for him and his work on our team. Uh, Marcus is part of the Kansas City Marketplace Fellows Program that we've been doing now for a few years. We take uh, just graduated college students, and uh, they come, and they're, they're with us here for uh, the year after following their college graduation and get jobs at various uh, businesses and organizations around the city, and we've had, had the opportunity to hire Marcus to join our team, so grateful for him. Um, I, I'd love uh, to ask you to join me in prayer this morning. Uh, we need God's help to understand his word, and so as we open up the Bible, as we study Acts 2, uh, we need God to illuminate our hearts and minds, so let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, uh, thank you for... Um, your word. Thank you for sermons that have come before this one, like Peter's in Acts 2. I pray uh, for our study of it, Lord, that you would guide us, direct us, that you would speak through me, and that we would learn what it is you would have for us this morning. I'm also grateful for children and child dedication. Thank you for those families that took the important step of dedicating their children to you this morning. And I pray that as a congregation, as a family, we truly would uh, support them um, in that important journey. I ask all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, maybe you heard the Super Bowl was last week. Uh, the ratings were the lowest that it had been since 2009, and you're like, oh, that's sad. 103 million people still watched it, so I think the NFL's okay. Uh, I was one of those people that watched the Super Bowl, and, and, and maybe you were too, and so maybe you've been thinking along the same lines, the same question, how did Nick Foles do it? I mean, right, this is the story. Maybe you know it. Maybe you've heard it. Uh, in 2015, Foles had finished up a disappointing season with the Rams. Uh, he was about to retire. He was about to hang him up, and Andy Reid, who uh, coached Foles, drafted Foles on the Eagles back in 2012, uh, he convinced uh, Nick Foles to come and be our backup for a season. Did you know that, that that was our backup, winning the Super Bowl MVP uh, trophy uh, last week? Uh, we drafted Mahomes. We declined the option on Foles' contract. He went to the Eagles. Wentz got hurt. Foles stepped in, and as they say in sports, the rest is history. I mean, it's an amazing story. He's a journeyman, quarterback. He's, he's been riding the pine at almost every stop that he's been at, and he'd never even played in a football, in a playoff game. He'd played in football games before, but he'd never even played in a playoff game before this season. And then, from all of that, he went on the biggest football stage possible and slayed the two-headed dragon that is Tom Brady and Bill <laughs> Belichick. And believe me, I googled that phrase to see if anybody had actually like put them onto a dragon. Nobody had. So if you're not busy this afternoon, you could do that for the sake of the internet. Um, with Nick Foles and otherwise, sometimes people just have a turnaround that's hard to explain, isn't it? Where they do things that we just can't understand, where they defy all expectations. And our passage today in Acts 2 contains a story with a moment like that. It centers on the person of Peter, the Apostle Peter. And by Acts 2, we have a pretty good handle on who Peter is. Peter is one of the first people to begin following Jesus, and he features prominently in all four gospel accounts of uh, Jesus' life. He's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's one of the main characters. Peter's a small business owner, a fisherman, likely as his father and grandfather and great-grandfather were. 
probably didn't have the highest of educations, and he certainly uh, had a propensity and an ability to do the old stick-your-foot-in-your-mouth routine. And I'm no stranger to that routine uh, myself, and so I've always really resonated with Peter's story. There are a lot of examples of Peter sticking his foot in his mouth, but I I think the most tragic happens right at the end of Jesus' life. Right before it all goes down, Jesus' betrayal, arrest, his trial, Peter swears to Jesus that he won't ever deny or abandon him. And then he immediately goes and denies and abandons him, not once, not twice, but three times. After Jesus' death and resurrection in the Gospel of John, we, we actually get to see Peter's restoration. And it's this beautifully touching scene. Jesus says to Peter, do you love me, Peter? Of course, Lord, you know I love you, Peter replies. So again, by by Acts 2, if you've read through, even if you've just read Luke's gospel, which came, it was the precursor to Acts, written by the same man, you've got a good idea of who Peter is. And he's fine, you know. He's a decent guy, a bit flawed, but really genuine. He's a great backup, not a top-flight starter. He's Nick Foles, not Carson Wentz. I mean, certainly you wouldn't have pegged him as the leader of the early church. You wouldn't have picked him as the guy who stands up here in Acts 2 and delivers, get this, the first sermon of the Christian church. Not the first to add 3,000 people to the Jesus movement. I think about it this way. In this moment that we're about to consider together, Peter becomes the first megachurch pastor. So what happened? How did this transformation take place in in his life? Well, Peter got the message. The message that Jesus had been preaching over and over and over again. It clicked for Peter. The proverbial penny dropped for him. Oh, this is what following Jesus is all about. In Acts 1, Peter and the disciples are told by Jesus to wait for power to come from on high. And a couple Sundays ago, we we talked about how the beauty, there's beauty in the church's dependence. The first thing that the church does is wait on God. That's significant. And then last Sunday, we talked about the first part of Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit filled the disciples just as Jesus promised would happen, And immediately they began speaking speaking the languages of the other Jewish faithful present in Jerusalem. From all over the known world, people were hearing these Galilean men and women speak to them about Jesus in their own languages. It would be as if you were walking around mainland China and, and without warning, out of nowhere, an entire village starts speaking to you in native English with no accent. That's what happened. I mean, that would be eerie, right? It would be creepy even. You'd have no explanation for that. Your, your friend leans over to you. Oh, they're just drunk. But you've heard drunk people before, and it's not quite like this. And suddenly, one of them, the leader, Peter, he stands up and he delivers this message, this sermon, the one that we have recorded for us right here in Acts 2. We can open our Bibles and read it just the same. And and so, yes, it's a bit long, but I am going to read all of it this morning. And I'm going to do that because, again, this is the first sermon of the Christian church. Consider the significance of that. 
And I'd love for us to be able to hear it in total, just like the original listeners did. I've chosen the New Living Translation. It's an incredible translation of God's Word. It's really readable, so hopefully that'll be easy to follow along. Hear the word of the Lord from Acts 2, Peter's sermon. Listen carefully, all of you fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel, who I'm quoting now. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before that great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, end quote. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. King David said this about Jesus, I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. End quote. Dear brothers and sisters, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself, for he died and was buried and his tomb is still here among us. But David was a prophet, and he knew God had promised an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on the throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave his Messiah among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. No, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. And now, now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us just as you see and hear today. For David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So let everyone know in Israel For certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. And let's say this as we do each week together. This is the word of the Lord. Now, what in the world is all of that supposed to mean? I mean, there's a lot happening, and there's too much to cover it all in total. But let's make sure this morning that we capture the high points that Peter was trying to hit. First, Peter begins by working to prove that Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus is who he said he was. It's interesting, isn't it, that that Peter doesn't begin with the felt needs of his listeners or appeal to their emotions. 
He doesn't have a hook on his sermon or a funny opening story. No, he dives straight in and he goes right for their head. For his listeners, logic and intelligence. Drunk, he says? These people aren't drunk. It's 9 a.m. Think about when bars open. No, what's happening here was predicted hundreds of years ago by someone you know well because all of you know your Bibles. It was predicted by the prophet Joel in chapter 2 of his book. And then Peter, he's off to the races, isn't he? I'm sure you noticed how much Peter calls back to the Old Testament. Joel 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, Psalm 132. He's driving straight through the flow and the narrative and the contours of the Old Testament. And he's doing that. He's calling back to it over and over and over again so that he can prove that all of it points to Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus is his opening claim. And that may sound like old hat to us. Oh, the Bible is about Jesus, sure. It may be tired to us, but this was a revolutionary and radical and dangerous statement in Peter's day. You see, the Old Testament, which was the entire Bible for Peter's listeners, it it, it promised, it anticipates a Savior King, a Redeemer, a Rescuer. And Peter's listeners, they hadn't missed that. They knew that they were waiting for someone. But what they had missed was that the person that they were waiting for was Jesus. They had missed Jesus. And so Peter takes them back through it. He says, look again more closely. It's all about Jesus. The one that we've been waiting for has come. And this really is a a brilliant move from Peter too. Because you see, these references and these stories were well known by his listeners. They were familiar to them. These were the stories, these were the characters that grandpa would tell them over the campfire. These were the songs that their mothers would sing them to sleep with. When these listeners, when Peter's listeners played with their friends in the neighborhood, when they were growing up, they acted out King David. They pretended to be Joel, the prophet. They were familiar, comforting stories. These people, they immersed themselves in their stories. These stories were their Harry Potters, their Star Wars, their Lord of the Rings. They would get lost in these stories and characters. And Peter, so he he lays them all out in front of his listeners and he says, all of these stories that you love and cherish so much, all of them come true in Jesus. He is who he said he was. He reasons with them. Even our scriptures as Jews affirm that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the one who sent the Spirit that you have just witnessed with your own eyes. Jesus is the one who David called my Lord in Psalm 110. Jesus is the promised Son of David who reigns forever on the throne. Everything you have been waiting for, everything you have been expecting has come true today in your hearing because of Jesus. Jesus is who he said he was. You see, Peter changed, Peter transformed, Peter turned the corner when he began to understand himself that God's plan was made perfect in Jesus. That's when it all clicked for Peter. And so now in Acts 2, what he's doing is he's inviting, he's pleading his listeners to follow him on that same journey. Think about it, he says. What other explanation is there? None. Jesus is who he said he was. And then comes Peter's turn. Every sermon has a good turn. And Peter's sermon is no exception. 
he sets it up. He sets up the turn by calling back to the Old Testament, by proving that Jesus is who he said he was. And then, after he sets that up, he grabs the wheel and he yanks hard for the turn. Jesus is who he said he was, and you killed him. Jesus is who he said he was, and you killed him. That's quite the turn, isn't it? And it's interesting because it's likely that most of the people listening to Peter weren't actual witnesses at Jesus' crucifixion. Very likely they weren't present when the, with the Jewish crowd who chanted crucify him to Pontius Pilate. And they certainly weren't the ones who hammered the nails into Jesus' cross. That was a Roman soldier. They weren't actually there. But, but put, that side, put that thought aside for a second. Just hold it right over here. And let's come back to this turn. Because we have to consider how devastating of a turn that is, don't we? God sent Jesus, the Savior King, the Redeemer, the Rescuer, the one that we had all been waiting for, and then you killed him. Which means, in God's story, you're the bad guy. You don't get to be Luke Skywalker. You don't get to be Harry Potter. You're Vader. You're Voldemort. You're the bad guy in God's story. But, Peter says, your plan, our plan was thwarted. This is his trump card, and he lays it down in verse 32. God raised Jesus from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. You tried to kill God, but you failed. The grave couldn't hold him. In fact, and this, the grave couldn't hold him. This is why Peter makes such a big deal of King David's grave. Like, why does he just keep mentioning that David's in the ground, his grave's still here among us, like two, three verses? Why is he doing that? Because David was on a pedestal for these people. That was the high point of Jewish history. Let's get back to that. Those were the good old days. If only we had somebody like King David. And Peter says, listen, as great as King David is, he's still in the ground. His grave is still among us. You know who's not still in the ground? Jesus. And Peter says, believe me because I ran to that grave to see. I tripped over myself. I heard the grave was empty. I heard that Jesus had risen. I didn't believe it. I had to see it with my own eyes. And I sprinted to the grave and I got there and it's empty. Go see for yourself. I mean, that's what he's doing. He's saying, David, he's amazing. He's great. He's in our history. He was a shadow of Jesus. David's still in the ground. Jesus isn't. It's empty, Jesus' grave. And more than that, not only has he risen, but he now reigns. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he reigns even now. This is what Peter says. And then comes the climax of Peter's sermon, the summary statement, his final punch. Verse 36, So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord, right? But that's Peter's sermon in a nutshell. Jesus is who he said he was, and you killed him. And it's the darndest thing, because the sermon works, or at least the Holy Spirit through the sermon works. Look at verse 37. I think I have it on the screen for us. Verse 37, Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? I love that question. What should we do? It's always jumped out at me when I read this passage. What should we do? And Peter doesn't miss a beat. The beginning of verse 38. Next slide. Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God 
and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And I think these two verses together, verses 37 and 38, they start to make sense of Peter's claim that his listeners killed Jesus. Go ahead and pick that thought up again. What is Peter talking about? His, his listeners weren't actually there. How could they have killed Jesus? But you see, this is the first great turn of the Christian faith. The first corner that we all have to round is realizing that even though you weren't personally present, your sin put Jesus on the cross. Even though you weren't personally present, your sin put Jesus on the cross. Church, listen, Christianity is not saying sorry to God while shrugging your shoulders, wandering off to live in the same manner that you had before. No, Christianity is first about coming to know at a deep and visceral level that you own culpability in Jesus' murder. And until that happens, until you reckon with that difficult and ugly and hard truth, Christianity won't make a whole lot of sense. It'll feel like a lot of rules and regulations. It'll feel like a lot of do this and don't do that. Until you get in the core of your being your own brokenness and the fact that that brokenness, that that sin, that that rebellion is what put Jesus on the cross, change won't happen. Transformation won't come. I think Peter understood this better than anyone. We've already mentioned the three times that Peter denied Jesus near the end of Jesus' life. Take a look at how Luke records the third denial in his gospel account. Luke 22, 59 through 62. After an interval, interval of about an hour, this is Jesus' trial with the Jewish leaders. So after an interval of about an hour, still another person insisted, saying, certainly Peter, this man, was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Next slide. And then the Lord Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Peter denies Jesus in earshot, in eyeshot of Jesus. The Lord Jesus turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord Jesus, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Can you even imagine locking eyes with Jesus in that moment? Without a doubt, Peter... He was cut to the heart in that moment. And that is what has to happen for change to come about. Friends, listen, it's, it's one thing to know that your sins have broken the rules. Peter, in that moment, realizes that he has broken Jesus' heart. Maybe for the first time, truly in his life, he understood that sin is not just rule-breaking, that each and every sin shatters the heart of God shatters it. Which then, this realization for Peter, it leads to the breaking of his own heart. He goes out and he weeps bitterly. What have I done? He's cut deep to the heart and his transformation begins. He gets it. And then in Acts 2, fast forward, in Acts 2, he invites his listeners on the same journey. Understand your sin. Understand that you killed Jesus. 
That sin breaks God's heart. And then maybe, he says to his listeners, maybe you will be cut to the heart, which is exactly what happened. Verse 37, again, Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? That phrase, pierced to the heart, it would be better translated as as stabbed in the heart. That's the literal translation of the word, stabbed in the heart. And his listeners, Peter's listeners in Acts 2, they are. They're stabbed in the heart. They get it. They get it just like Peter did. We killed Jesus. Our sin held him there. Which prompts them to ask, what should we do? And again, I love this question. I love this question because it makes me think about us here today in Kansas City. Because Now, you and I, we have heard Peter's message just like his original listeners did. We've heard it just the same. And so with our remaining time, let's ask that same question. What should we do? What should we do? Well, first, repent like this. Repent like this. And to understand what I mean by this, we have to fast forward to the end of our passage, Acts 2.41. And, and that verse reads this way. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. Repent like that, folks. On that day, some 2,000 years ago, 3,000 people believed Peter's words They believed that Jesus was who he said he was. They believed, more importantly, that they were the ones that killed him with their sin, that their sin put Jesus on the cross. They believed that their sin was what separated them from God, and they believed that the way back to God was through complete surrender to and trust in Jesus Christ. They believed, they repented, and they believed. So I have to ask, have you believed Peter's words about Jesus? Have you been stabbed in the heart? Have you wept bitterly over your sin? Have you repented like this? Friends, if the phrase Jesus died for my sins is still an abstract concept for you, that's a serious problem. Or or maybe, and I know this in my own life, if the phrase Jesus died for my sins is somehow tired and old, and boring, and been there, done that, that is a serious problem. Because until we feel the weight of that statement in the core of our being, change won't happen. Transformation won't come. While preparing this week, I, I couldn't get the hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, out of my head. And specifically, these verses. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Next slide. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. When you sing that song, do you cling to those words? Do you own them completely and totally? If not, you might still need to repent like this. And and maybe you've been in church your whole life. Maybe you're familiar with all of this, but as you you heard Peter's sermon, you realized, I don't know if I've ever repented like that. Or maybe this is your first time here. Maybe you came with a friend. 
Have you repented like this? If not, there is no day like today. No time like the present. Repent like this. Second, we must receive the grace. Receive the grace. You see, when his listeners asked what they must do, Peter tells them to repent and be baptized. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. For the forgiveness of sins. You see, what Peter learned when he was stabbed in the heart and what he wanted his audience to learn was that, yes, Jesus died, but he died for us. He died for us. And that's the story of all time, isn't it? The killed dying for his killers? What's more astounding than that? Yes, you and I, we killed Jesus with our sin, but he was killed for the forgiveness of sins. And that's what God's whole plan has been about from the very beginning, dealing with the sin problem that we created in the first place back in the garden. And then the rest of the Bible from Genesis 3 on outlines God's plan to fix that sin problem, and his plan culminates in Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the whole Bible. Every story whispers his name. Which is why Peter spends so much time talking about David, about Joel, about the Old Testament. Because it's all about Jesus. It all points to him. Every hero is a shadow of him. Every sacrifice is a foretaste. And every failure is an indicator that without Jesus, we're doomed. Without Jesus, we have no hope at all. But with Jesus, with him, we can receive the grace. It's not about works. We killed him. There is nothing that we can do on our own to be changed. But Jesus forgives us if only we repent and receive the grace. And Peter says to his listeners and to us, he says, receive the gift like I did. And you will be changed forever. Believe, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Receive the grace. Finally, what must we do? Tell everybody. Tell everybody. Hey, this is what Peter does, isn't it? It all finally clicked for him, and then he stood up, and he started telling anyone and everyone that would listen, brothers and sisters, listen to me. These people aren't drunk. He commands the room. And furthermore, don't miss what he says at the end of his message, verse 39. This promise, this promise is to you, to your children, and to all those who are far away, to anyone who has been called by the Lord our God. And that is the beauty of this message, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for our sins. Sins, it can't stay. It won't stay contained. And Peter, he, he projects this. I mean, who is he to say this message is for any and all who are far away? There's 120 of them at that moment. But he says this is for everyone. He knew that the message wasn't going to stay contained. And think about that for a moment. The message of Jesus preached by the church started in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, some 6,000 miles away. And yet, here today in 2018 in Kansas City, you and I heard literally the exact same message. What are the odds of that? How mind-blowing is that? And, and how did it happen? Well, it, it happened 
the same way that we see here in Acts 2. Peter was convinced and then changed. And immediately, he began to tell everybody. 3,000 people fall to their knees. They're stabbed to the heart. They repent, receive the grace, and what do you think they do next? They tell everybody, and on and on and on. I mean, remember, most of these Jews were pilgrim travelers in Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of Pentecost. So they left. They went back home, taking the message of Jesus with them. Immediately after this sermon in Acts 2, the good news message of Jesus Christ began to spread around the globe. It cut across miles. It blitzed through time. And eventually, it reached you. It reached me in Gurney, Illinois, when I was just a kid. My great-grandmother had passed away. I was confused. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know where she went. And, and I went to my mom and I asked her about that. The message that Peter preached had just reached my mom. Weeks earlier, months earlier, we started going to this church and my mom was is, was, is a teacher. And so she volunteered with the kids. And she's in a training about how to lead a child to Jesus Christ. And she realized, I've never been led to Jesus Christ. The message reached my mom, and then, and then I come to her as a kid, confused about the death of my great-grandmother, and I ask her about it, and she was like, I just got trained how to do this, and I gave my life to Christ. Same message, Acts 2, cuts through time, cuts across miles, and it reaches you, it reaches me, but this work isn't finished, isn't it? It's not. There's more to do, so I wonder, are we telling everybody are we doing this as Peter did? Now, it's going to look different, of course. I would not recommend starting by quoting a lot of Joel chapter 2. But that was exactly where Peter needed to start. It fit the moment. It fit his audience. So how about us? And I'm not talking about getting a megaphone and setting up on a street corner. I'm talking about winsomely and wisely sharing our message about Jesus in the places where God has given us influence. Recently, I heard the thoughts of a Christ community member reflecting on this task of telling everyone. He works in a very competitive corporate environment, and he said this. He said, I'm always seeking to be strategic and specific when I share the gospel. My context isn't exactly conducive to the values of the gospel. I can't just go around sharing all the time, but I'm looking for the open door, and when it's cracked, I take it. I, that's what we mean here. So, so I wonder, can we say the same? Are we looking for the open door? Are we seeking to tell everyone, like Peter, when we get and understand this message? Are we asking God for opportunities, for wisdom, and for words where we could share this? Can we watch for the Spirit's work in our daily lives, begging Him to open doors so that we can share this message with others who we know need it just as badly as we did? I know that I certainly... Don't feel up to the task of telling everybody. Maybe you're with me. But I take comfort in Peter's story because if he can do it, maybe I can too. So this week, in the next seven days, tell somebody. Telling everybody is a big task. We probably won't check it off the list in the next week. But we have to start somewhere. So tell somebody. And again, this will look different for each of us. Maybe it will finally be inviting that one person with you to church. You know who. Or maybe God will open a door for you to listen to the struggles of a coworker and then share how Jesus led you through something similar. 
Or I don't know, maybe you'll preach an Old Testament saturated sermon to a huge crowd and 3,000 people will believe in Jesus. Who knows? Could be any one of those. And yes, I'm going to take my own next step. I'm going to tell somebody this week. So hold me to it. Next Sunday, ask me, how did it go? Church, listen, I know the challenge of this. We don't want to feel like salespeople peddling a product. You can get Jesus for three easy payments of $19.99 each. The motivation to tell everybody comes when you realize that Jesus isn't a product. When you realize that he is, in his own words, the way, the truth, and the life. When you realize that he is the king of the universe reigning from on high. When you realize that he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. When you realize that he is the promised savior redeemer that God said he was going to send. When you realize that he is the chosen one sent to fix our sin problem. And then we killed him. But praise be to God because death couldn't hold him. And he lives. And what's more, he reigns from on high. And he invites you and he invites all who are far off to come and be with him. Jesus says, right, Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me and I will give you rest. Jesus says, I have come to give you life and life abundantly. This is who we're telling everybody about. And when you realize that he's not a product, that he is who he said he was, and that, yes, you killed him, but he forgives you for that, when that roots deep down into the core of your being, what happens? You can't help but be compelled to tell others, to tell everybody. So let's do it. And let's do it together. Pray with me. Father in heaven, it's really hard to tell everybody. It's really hard to tell somebody. But we don't do it alone. We do it with your message, our message, and we do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I pray for us this week, Father. I pray that you would give us all open doors and that we would walk through them, empowered by your Spirit to winsomely and wisely share the message of Jesus Christ, the good news message that he is who he said he was and he forgives us for our sins. Father, I pray as well for people in this room who might not have repented like this, I pray, Father, that they would be compelled to do so today, that you would push them in that direction and show them the abundant life that is waiting for them, that is life in Jesus. I pray all this in the name of him, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.